0: will uh, get underway it is a real uh, uh, first it's very nice to see so many people coming out on a rainy uh, day usually uh, uh, weather like this cuts the audience in uh, half but I can tell that uh, people are really interested in this uh, uh, topic it is a real pleasure uh, to welcome Congressman uh, Mike Turner here The congressman and I have uh, uh, known each other for almost, I think, since he began his uh, time on Capitol Hill. He's been a member since 2002. He serves on House Armed Services, Intelligence, and Oversight and Government Reform Committees. Um, And in the recent years, he's also been very active in the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. Uh, started out as the head of the U.S. delegation in 2011 and was the uh, president of the assembly uh, for the last uh, two years and just handed over leadership uh, last week I guess it was. So um, here's what we're going to do today. He has to leave at 1150 because of votes. Uh, I'd ask you to just uh, sit tight when we get to the end so he can just head right out and uh, grab an elevator and get down into a car. Um, The way we're going to handle questions is uh, you can either write them down outside, you can send them to us by Twitter, at Hudson Events, all one word, or you can email them at events at Hudson.com. So with that, I'm going to uh, allow Congressman Turner to make some introductory remarks and then we'll get to the Q&A. Well, Craig,
1: I want to begin by thanking you personally uh, because of your longstanding commitment and um, your uh, body of work on the transatlantic uh, alliance. Um, You have both uh, helped the dialogue um, in to ensure that we have a strong uh, alliance and have ensured, I think, more importantly, um, that uh, Congress be engaged in that. Uh, your efforts have included educating Congress, making certain that there are exchanges and dialogue between parliamentarians uh, of our European partners, uh, and an understanding of the issues of, of um, how um, our, our responsibility and roles in, in NATO have played a, uh, an important aspect in not just the fall of the Berlin Wall and establishing democratic institutions, but really being a beacon of um, a, an advocate for democratic institutions. Uh, from that standpoint. So thank you for your work. Thank you. I want to thank the Hudson Institute for hosting this and also for for the parallel of, of their work. Um, this uh, certainly gives us uh, the ability to have the dialogue that from which form, uh, formal policy uh, is formulated. Uh, I think this is a, an opportunity for us to lay some of the groundwork of the policy elements that we all struggle with and, and deal with. Um, The uh, the NATO Parliamentary Assembly uh, has about 250 voting delegates from the 28 uh, NATO nations and 150 affiliated um, uh, delegates um, from um, either partner nations or nations who are aspiring uh, to be, be part of NATO. It's been my honor to participate in that because it's given us the ability to go right to parliamentarians who are decision makers in Europe. And make our case on some of the U- U.S. Uh, policy issues, and hear directly from them uh, where their issues. But also, in looking at what you know, Craig's focus has been on the U.S. Congress. It's been it's given us the ability to try to engage our European parliamentarians in um, bringing their message directly to Capitol Hill. It's about four years ago, um, a um, an amendment was placed on an appropriations bill on the floor of the House that would have caused all of the U.S. troops to be withdrawn from Europe. And although today we all think how outrageous of a prospect that that would have been, uh, we weren't all paying attention. And the the resolution, the amendment passed it uh, on the House floor uh, to our shock. Uh, so we began the process with the NATO Parliamentary Assembly of bringing NATO uh, to Capitol Hill because there was no voice in Capitol Hill. So one of the things we did is we got a list of all those who'd voted in favor. We got a list of all those who we know had... Um, Either questions about NATO and those who were uh, strong NATO supporters. And we began doing the Capitol Hill rounds. Uh, And the next time the amendment came up, uh, we won and it lost. The next time it came up, it was an overwhelming margin. And the last time that the amendment came up, the rules committee didn't even put it on the floor. Um, So we feel like we had won that dialogue. Um, I think uh, Vladimir Putin had also helped us uh, in that dialogue. Uh, but we had just—I've just returned from uh, my, my last um, meeting of the governing the NATO Parliamentary Assembly as its president. It was in Istanbul, Turkey. We had the interesting balance as being the deliberative body, who, who um, from which Turkey is a very valuable and active member, um, but also um, to um, show our support but our concerns for the trends and what is happening in, in Turkey. Uh, Erdogan came and spoke to our group. Uh, I spoke before him and was given the task of trying to characterize the concerns of the Native parliamentary assembly, so he was not left just with the sense of of our um, welcome and appreciation. Um, But uh, what we related was that throughout all of our discussions on Turkey, we had concerns of rule of law, uh, judicial processes being open and based on uh, evidentiary findings. Um, The... uh, the response to that was, I think, very positive. Um, the Turkish government had sent the Minister of Defense, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, and uh, the Minister of Justice to our sessions to answer questions open and for an extended period of time. And so we were very confident they had heard from us our, our concerns. Um, so I, I do believe that uh, although you know, we are all remain concerned, uh, I do think they are hearing us, and they are certainly hearing um, the um, – both our support uh, for the concern of, of the coup and the terrorism attacks, coupled with, uh, with rule of law. Uh, now, as NATO Parliament uh, president, I had three major goals, all of which that you uh, will, will share and embrace. And those were, you know, one, um, reengaging the conversation to deterrence, that we had walked away from the issue of deterrence. NATO had even declared itself as having no adversary. Um, but trying to refocus on the issue of what really is our responsibility as a military alliance for preventative defense uh, and deterrence. Uh, secondly, turning the issue of spending, um, that uh, in order to accomplish deterrence, obviously we have to increase spending, but uh, the partners of NATO have to increase their participation. And then thirdly, um, the issue of expansion, making certain that the open door remains an open door. And certainly through that, advocating for Montenegro, who satisfied the, the requirements to be able to um, be the example of the dialogue is, is certainly important, and the, the invitation is is there. Uh, as the uh, president of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly, I had the opportunity to address the heads of state uh, in Warsaw. Uh, that was somewhat of a surreal um, experience. Uh, I was... Um, um, the first speaker in the closed session, uh, the only other American besides our American delegation, Defense Secretary, of State, and President, who were speaking. So imagine you walk in the room, and you know it's it's Merkel and Hollande and Trudeau and Obama, and and you're giving them an address. Um, the um, what was heartening is that their dialogue and their resolutions were consistent with the message that the NATO Parliamentary Assembly uh, had delivered. And and to give a little focus on the issue of deterrence. Um, you know, I think that uh, we always talk about whenever um, there's a, a period of lesser conflict that we have a peace dividend or an ability to cut our forces. The reality is, is that uh, our commitment needs to remain constant in order to make certain that we're safe. So the analogy I use is that you know, we all lock our doors at night, not because we believe that our neighbors are murderers and thieves, but because to not do so would be irresponsible for our families. For our NATO family, deterrence is the same. Uh, we have to rise to the, to the level of commitment of funding deterrence so that anyone, uh, whether there be change of circumstances or politics or um, or, or threat, uh, sees um, uh, that, uh, that NATO is, is a, an adversary not worth attacking. And uh, in the back, you'll see, uh, in conjunction with the Warsaw Summit, I issued a... A report, Deterrent to, to Defend, uh, which goes over the issues of Russian aggression, some of the threats that we have, uh, and what it's really going to take for deterrence, because if we look at our adversaries, self-declared, uh, their modernization, their investment, uh, now poses a significant threat to our military superiority. On the issue of spending, um, <clears throat> both uh, in Istanbul and Warsaw, I mean, it has been universal as the discussion that Europe cannot continue to send the bill to the United States for its own defense. Uh, Russia's economy is somewhere equal to you know, Italy or Spain, not Italy and Spain, uh, but yet it has a military might that is equal uh, and that can challenge all of Europe, uh, but for uh, the United States' participation. Um, you know, Europe should be ashamed, actually, that uh, that it is unable to garner the forces necessary to uh, to defend itself. Um, the um, in the NATO parliamentary assembly, I've had parliamentarians say to me, "Well, I have a hard time on my." floor of my parliament encouraging people to increase defense spending, because when I tell them we need to increase defense spending, they say, well, why would we have to increase defense spending? We're in NATO. Well, our goal in this dialogue is to reverse that. I mean, the answer on the parliamentary floor should be we have to increase our defense spending because we're in NATO. Uh, That should be an obligation that they all arise to. Now, on the open-door policy um, the um, – it is great that Montenegro is uh, going to be joining NATO. Um, they um, represent both an important strategic uh, geographical spot, but also an important alliance. Uh, the other issue, obviously, is that it, it needed to be resolved because the pressures on Montenegro, uh, the interference uh, both from Russia and, as we saw recently in the, the, um, the attempted coup action, um, this is something that we need to put to bed for even the stability of, of Montenegro itself. Uh, but the aspect that we want to focus on in Open Door is not just one uh, come in and not just um, a, a lineup of members that are ready to go through the door, but a, a, a recommitment by NATO of its function of working with aspiring nations, because we used to be the forward-leaning organization that would work with nations on rule of law, on de- democracy building, on, um, you know, um, uh, civilian control of the military, on uh, reforms, on interoperability, and we became bureaucrats where we had a checklist where nations would have to present themselves and we'd check the boxes to see whether or not they were eligible as opposed to saying putting their arm, our arm around them and saying that for the good of, of even your country and for the process, we're going to work with you as, as your partner. Um, <clears throat> Trump. Um, I, the um, uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg uh, has spoken to Trump. Um, I was able to facilitate that uh, somewhat through um, uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, because Stoltenberg had been trying to to, to make a connection. And um, I think the importance of it uh, finally rose to the level uh, where they spoke just before we had our conference. So Stoltenberg was able to come and report. that They had a very good conversation. Uh, I think what we're hearing from the administration is an absolute commitment to Article 5, uh, but an absolute commitment that our partners need to increase their defense spending. Um, that message is certainly consistent with what came out of Warsaw. It's consistent with what came out of the Obama administration, and it's certainly something that, that we absolutely need to do. Um, the um, I, I would not take any of the conversations about increased dialogue with Russia as being a walk away from either a commitment to NATO or a commitment to um, building up our military. President-elect has been very clear about increasing our military strength. The one thing that we know is we're all for dialogue, but there's no portion of dialogue that can offset deterrence, and there's no portion of deterrence that can offset dialogue. Both um, pursuing either to exclusion of the others is is risky and is not in our best interest.
0: So, with that drive through, uh, I'll turn to Ukraine. Okay, let me um, ask uh, uh, two follow-up questions. The first one really touches on on the campaign. Um, If you would have told me 20 years ago that we'd ever have a presidential campaign where a sitting president expressed doubts about our European allies, um, a pretty successful primary challenger in the Democratic side questioned our commitments to NATO, and the presidential winner of the campaign did the same thing that it would really reflect a kind of a changed mood in the United States. And yes, you know, when you ask a question uh, to Americans, do you support NATO, you still get 60 70% to say yes. When you ask questions about willingness to actually honor Article 5, if it means sending troops, etc., it goes down quite a lot. Do you see in Congress an erosion of support for NATO, or more questioning of it? Or is it just kind of a quirk this year that uh, that there was so much attention paid to this in the presidential election? <clears throat> well, a couple things. Uh, one, um, I do believe that
1: people are concerned. Um, and they're concerned because there hasn't really been enough um, commitment <clears throat> to invest in NATO for the obligations that we've undertaken. Uh, Many of you would be familiar with the RAND study that looked at uh, the Mm -hmm. Baltics and what would happen if there was a conflict with Russia and that Russia would overwhelm the Baltics in um, two days or so. And we'd be faced with what they declared were three options, a protracted conventional war, nuclear war, or concede. Well, that's really not three options. Um, um, I, I think the reality of what we've not done um, is sinking in and giving people a pause as they look to the issue of, uh, of Russian aggression and certainly the need for applying international pressure on Russia. So we're not to that point. But even the area besides military investment of infrastructure investment, and people are beginning to have the discussion of, well, you know, we really never uh, worked with Eastern Europe to do the reconfiguration of their Warsaw infrastructure that is a clearly an impediment, an intentional impediment to the ability to move troops and, and equipment. Mm-hmm. That's an issue that people are aware of that we need to address. Second thing is, is, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, the Congress is absolutely committed. We're passing an increase of 3.4 billion dollars in defense spending for the European Reassurance Initiative, and it's called the European Reassurance Initiative. So there's no one who's confused about what what this this is. Mm-hmm. Everyone is is um, widely in support of it. It's going to preposition troops and equipment. But they're waiting for the American Reassurance Initiative, because that's what we need from our European partners. And that's the aspect that I think that, and everywhere I've spoken, I, I've tried to. And we had the Transatlantic Dialogue, your EU counterpart in this week with the, the Chairman Mario Diaz-Balart. And we made the point again of we need the American Reassurance Initiative on, on behalf of, of the uh, Europeans. So I think there's uh, wide support, there's concern, but largely as a
0: result of the neglect from the past. Okay. So the uh, day after the election, I flew off to uh, Europe and was uh, planning on explaining what the new Clinton administration would uh, would look like. And instead spent uh, a week talking to uh, semi-stunned uh, Europeans. Um, the one thing I was somewhat impressed by, though, is they had gotten this message, we have to do more. And I think some interpreted the election of Donald Trump as a sign of um, American withdrawal or pulling back. But many others took it as a sign we're going to be held accountable. Was that the impression you got as you talked to your colleagues in Istanbul last week? Uh, there are
1: some, certainly the UK being one, uh, who are excited about the pressure that's going to be uh, placed on our European allies, because they see that um, we've, we've we've done a lot of talk without a whole lot of, of real uh, consequences or incentive. Now, those consequences won't be Article 5, but there real needs to be real persuasion, because otherwise we're going to continue to face uh, a, a NATO that has an aggressor of Russia that we
0: are not yet configured to address. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um who has the questions that have been submitted? If you can bring them up, and we'll uh, get into that. Well, she's coming up here. Um, what was the response in Turkey to the, um, I think, fairly sharp, uh, not sharp, the, the strong message that the Assembly sent on democracy and human rights within Turkey. Was well-received? Was there a lot of pushback from uh, the Turkish government? Uh, I think it was well-received, and I think people were somewhat
1: surprised that <clears throat> the extent to which um, both the Turkish delegation and the Turkish government was willing to engage in conversation and dialogue. This was not that they walked in, gave us their message, and and walked out. They engaged and answered questions. And they impassionately spoke of the commitment to um, democratic institutions, but the need to address the issue of the coup and and terrorism. Obviously, when you have the enormous deployment that had to occur um, for that coup attempt. Uh, there are a number of people that are involved, and and you know certainly the attempts to, uh, to kill the president himself are going to lend itself uh, um, to a requirement that they take action. Uh, now, I, I think um, their message to us was hold us accountable. Uh, let's continue the dialogue. Uh, continue to hold us to our word, and I think
0: everybody is commi- committed to doing that. Okay, so. Uh, The first question, coming from uh, Voice of America, Georgian service, is what should Georgia, a bold and ambitious NATO aspirant, expect under the new U.S. administration, given the president-elect's proclaimed view on NATO and the leader of the Russian Federation? Well, I, I think um, you're going to see greater engagement uh, from the
1: United States with, with all of our allies and certainly an increased military capability. You know, if I going, was going to fault the, passive, you know, the leaving, the parting departing administration, um, and, and I have in many cases, I would say many times it wasn't the issue of just pursuing wrong policies, which sometimes I believe that they were. It's indecisiveness, indecision, um, not, uh, not implementing. Um, I think that's going to have a, a huge impact of the fact that decisions are going to be made. Now, another thing I've told my, my European counterparts is that, you know, they don't have a very good perspective of how someone can come into leadership of the, our country or the party laterally. You know, in their country, someone has to come up through a party to come become the head of the party to become the, the person that comes forward. You can't, on an, as an independent, seek it and become president and become the head of the party. And, and the difference in that is not just difference in process. It's that when the election's over, um, in, the, in the parliamentary system, you'll have minions. You'll have people who put you there, who, who, from which you rose up. In this situation, we don't, have, we don't have Trump minions. So what we're seeing is that Trump is doing what, what we suspected. He's turning to those people that we all really already know. Uh, to populate the government. And that, I think, is
0: going to give people a lot of assurance as they start to see who these people are and what their expertise and experience is. So besides Montenegro, should the Georgians have any hope of uh, NATO membership anytime soon? Well, absolutely. I think, again, what what needs to happen is
1: NATO needs to lean forward. It's not just a... a, a um, a clipboard where we're checking marks. We should be that partner for building democratic institutions, building stability. I think that will lead to both strengthening of the alliance and also
0: a move toward membership. Okay. So uh, another question from Voice of America. This is from the Russian service. The EU parliament adopted a resolution about Russian propaganda. One of the factors of Russian influence in Europe is propaganda propaganda. How concerned should the U.S. be about this, and uh, what uh, should Congress be doing about it? Well,
1: I serve, as you indicated, on both the Armed Services Committee and the Intel Committee, and I put forth a provision last year that required a report to be issued specifically on what we know um, of the Russian involvement uh, in um, both our European partners and in the United States, and that there be a declassed. Uh, five version of that, which were in the process of, of getting issued. Um, I think it's a, a, of a grave concern, and it's not just a grave concern because it's there. It's because it's not being clearly identified, called out, and responded to. You know, when I was in Montenegro, and I'm driving around, there were billboards of anti-NATO. Um, you know, that that wasn't coming from your your local. Um, you know. Um, Activists that yeah. are just concerned citizens, right? This is this is this is being funded through a concerted efforts to try to undermine uh, Montenegro's um, public support for, for NATO. Those things need to be responded to because we need to understand where they're coming from, um, what, what uh, their funding is, ways in which if it's done illegally that it
0: be stopped, uh, but also that it be responded to. Uh-huh. Uh Just as a, a follow up on that, um, you know, if you look at rushed aggression in the last three or four years, it's very different than what it would have been in the past. It's not going to be tanks going across a border, at least we hope not. It is going to be much more this hybrid warfare of different kinds, uh, using propaganda, using uh, infiltration, et cetera. How prepared is NATO to deal with that kind of threat?
1: Well, I think they're getting prepared. I mean, the little green men issue is one where, um, you know, we're clearly seeing that Russia is willing to, uh, in order to achieve its international goals, violate international law. Um, as we look to the Baltics, you know, the grave concern is, is again, identifying where it's occurring, making certain it's responded to, um, and that, uh, that NATO take action. It's, it's part of the, um, of the to-do list and an agenda item, but the other thing is is that that um, NATO or allies, of the United States, have to play the. A, a, longer game of analysis of what russia is trying to to achieve um, i i don't think if you look at what russia has done now that this was some nationalistic push um, to uh, to annex crimea it was about getting a military base where you can get access of land sea and air denial if you look at what they're doing in kaliningrad what they're doing in crimea and what they're installing in syria uh, this is about creating a buffer that gives them the type of reach that they would have had with the warsaw pact without having to have the land or the commitment um, or the, the, the nations that were under them. Seeing their long-term plan, I think, will help
0: us respond better. Okay, good. Um, okay, here's a question. You're going to have to uh, explain what the initials uh, mean to the audience. What is the prognosis for NDAA and, more specifically, ERI remaining intact? Okay, NDAA, National Defense Authorization
1: Act, and ERI is the European Reassurance Initiative. And that's the three four point four billion that I spoke of, which was the prepositioning of troops and equipment. Uh, that is intact. Uh, it is funded. It's not in the supplemental. It's actually in the, the bill itself. Um, I think um, you know, General Breedlove, as he was uh, coming out of Europe, did an excellent job of laying the strategic groundwork for people to understand how necessary this was, that we had to get there and that we had to get things in place. Um, and that this was just a start. It was not just about defending Europe. It was also about our own uh, our own defense uh, and our own capabilities. Um, the National Defense Authorization Act, I believe, will be on the House floor this Friday, and I think it will be passed by the Senate. Uh, we have not heard from the president what he will do, but I'd be incredibly surprised uh, with the bipartisan support we're going to have for the NDAA um, that the president would find himself um, needing to uh, to veto a
0: bill that – uh, that really is necessary to protect our troops. Okay, uh, I've got one last question, and uh, Rachel, if you have others, you can bring them up to me. Um, and this is a, a big one. Will the new administration follow a Jacksonian foreign policy? Well, um, you know, it, it's kind of is funny. Walter s- Russell Mead here? I mean, that's that sounds like a question he would ask. You know, it's
1: funny when you look at how revolutionary this administration is. That's probably the biggest nexus that you can have to uh, uh, to popularism and, um, populism and populism and uh, the uh, the themes that we saw in the campaign. Um, I think that for looking at the policies, what their doctrine will be and what they'll pursue, we need to look at it through the lens of not the rhetoric of the campaign, but the rhetoric um, or the substance of those that are going to populate uh, the, the government. Um, we've already seen a very thoughtful approach uh, from the president-elect in his conversations with those he's interviewing. I mean, he's actually not just doing a litmus test. I believe X, do you believe it? Uh, he's saying, I believe X, and you know what, what, what would you tell me about it? And apparently, the dialogues are, are being very fruitful. Uh, and I think you see that in some of the people that are being advanced. Um, so, I, I think in order to answer that question, but it's interesting because I think certainly from a campaign uh, perspective, you could draw that line easily. It would be, um, you
0: know, let's look at who these people are and what their policies are. I'm not going to ask you who you think the next uh, Secretary of Defense will be, but if you were going to give advice to the next Secretary on what their priorities should be over the next four years, what would it be? I think. Um, the Department of Defense
1: needs to be m- much more clear in the threats that we have and in the loss of capability, the impacts of sequestration, and the financial needs of our Department of Defense. You know, when sequestration was first opposed by the administration, and this is where both my staff and my former staff get to smile, because I always say, and I voted against it, um, it, was, um, um, it, it was implemented without the Department of Defense being able to tell, either the American public or even Congress, what would happen if sequestration occurred. Now, we all know everybody who's ever run an organization. The moment you have draconian cuts that happen, you know, the first thing you do is, is cancel those things that you, that you can immediately cancel, which, of course, would be exercises, training. Um, then you begin um, doing uh, you know, cutting short-term contracts, spare parts, maintenance. Uh, then you begin cutting long-term contracts, modernization. And then you begin throwing people overboard. Well, that's exactly what our Department of Defense did without any real description to either the Congress or the American public as to what each of those steps were going to do. Um, the, you know, frequently, I'll go to the Department of Defense, and they'll get out their charts and their descriptions of the the terrible condition that, that we're in. And my answer to them is, is I know You need to go tell the rest of Congress. You need to go tell the the rest of the American public. So they need to get out from behind the desk at the Department of Defense, and they need to get out and tell the story, because if the
0: story's told, easily we'll fix it. That's great. Um, What's your opinion of US military assistance in NATO's Black Sea front, like US military deployment in Bulgaria and Romania?
1: I think it's important. Uh, you know, when you also look at our um, recent installation of missile defense in, in Romania, um, you know we have a presence there. One that is going to take a, a, an increase um, of um, our assessment of how do we protect these assets. Uh, but also because Russia is being so aggressive and their um, interest in Crimea clearly were in, in dominating and dominating the Black Sea, we have to have a presence to be able to begin to offset that or. We, we, um, we will not be able to turn it back. It has to be something where we're, the uh, NATO and our allies are putting a stake in the ground now, or a, a boy in the sea, if you will, um, that, uh, that, that says we're not going to concede.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, do we have any other questions, Rachel? Do you mind taking one or two from the audience? Correct. Sure. Right? right here. Identify yourself.
1: Well, I, I believe that Russian objections to missile defense is a red herring. Uh, everyone who knows anything about missile defense at all um, knows that both in just you know, basic ge- geometry, ge- trajectory, and in numbers, the United States missile defense presence in, in Europe is irrelevant to um, to any strategic balance between the United States and, and Russia or NATO and Russia. Um, it is something that we need to do. All, you know, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction is scary enough, but the proliferation of missile technology is even more scary. Uh, Iran continues to pursue ICBMs. North Korea, which is already a nuclear weapon state, um, is perfecting ICBM technology uh, that puts uh, the United States mainland and, of course, all our allies at risk. Uh, so, um, you know, we need to go full steam ahead. We should already have the capability. If the if this administration had not canceled the ground-based system that was uh, scheduled for, um, for Europe, we wouldn't be in this catch-up situation uh, that we're in of trying to look at Aegis Ashore, which again <clears throat> provides no protection for the United States mainland. If you recall, the ground-based system was going to both protect our allies and the United States. Uh, the administration, when they killed that, they came forward with a phase-adaptive approach that was supposed to have a fourth phase. And that fourth phase was supposed to protect the mainland United States. The president canceled that. Um, what we have done in Congress uh, in the NDAA uh, is we have pursued an East Coast missile defense uh, site uh, which is still under study and, and development uh, I, I uh, want to uh, certainly advocate that this new administration continue to pursue that because that's the missing gap that this administration has prevented us from deploying so, thank you uh, there's
0: a question over here
1: Here's a
2: microphone for you. Good to see you. Uh, in uh, Wales, uh, all NATO member state, states committed to the defense uh, spending uh, pledge, and uh, many of them uh, have taken uh, quite serious measures to reach this 2 percent requirement. Uh, Bulgaria was among uh, those countries, and um, I hope uh, that you will approve quite soon the European Reassurance Initiative. Uh, in Warsaw, cybersecurity was included as an equal area of defense along with uh, land, air, and sea. Was uh, this question discussed in Istanbul? Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, what do you think about cybersecurity?
1: Uh, yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, it, it's it's an incredibly important issue, not just as a uh, a form of isolated attack but the effect that it can have overall in ongoing operations. And we certainly have seen that in the Ukraine. Uh, one of the discussions that we had in Istanbul was was about how we're seeing in Ukraine that both conventional and cyber attacks uh, are being used jointly. I mean, we're all familiar with the Estonia attack that was a, a um, uh, identified as a Russian-led uh, cyber-only, uh, but the um, – the vulnerability that we have uh, in a conventional conflict, or even just basic operations, uh, where cyber can inhibit uh, our operations is is incredibly important. Uh, And as you all know, know, NATO continues to debate the issue as to what level of a cyber attack actually considers uh, an attack under which Article 5 might um, arise, or what Article 5 response there would be. Um, But Uh, There is a call not only to um, harden our uh, assets that we can uh, withstand or thwart cyber attacks, but also increase our ability and capabilities to be able to operate in the cyber world to to see what um, vulnerabilities our adversaries might have if we find ourselves in a conflict.
0: Excellent. Uh, All the way in the back? Thank you. Alex Inesky, Voice of America Russian Service. Uh, Congressman, I have a question. Do you have any ideas if uh, the new administration planning to join Normandy Format to solve an issue in eastern Ukraine? Thank you. I have no information about that. Okay. Uh, Down here.
3: Hello, Congressman. I'm Vlora Tarko, the ambassador of Republic of Kosovo. I actually have two questions. Uh, The first one... um, is related to Montenegro. Uh, probably, uh, the invitation extended to Montenegro to join NATO was the best news, not only for Montenegro but for the entire region, because it also reinforces the open door policy. Um, we would really be interested to know whether this, um, whether the agreement will be put on on the table for vote in the Congress and what what the timeline is. And secondly, uh, it's about Kosovo. Kosovo is the only country in Western Balkans, well, <laughs> besides Serbia, but that's their choice. We're the only country in the region that has no partnership for peace. Uh, that is because of the four countries uh, that still have not recognized our independence. But do you believe that um, um, with a new administration, um, NATO will re-engage in a new dialogue? in order to maintain the open-door policy and become more creative in order to involve uh, all the states that want to join NATO. Because now with EU <laughs> having some serious um, serious uh, problems, the role of NATO has dramatically increased.
1: Well, as you may be aware, I have a very soft spot in my heart for the entire Balkan area being from Dayton, Ohio, where I, when I served as mayor, the Dayton Peace Accords were being negotiated. I actually happened to be in a very forced Gump way in Tuzla uh, when the Russians um, broke from the peacekeeping uh, force there and crossed the border into Kosovo to create the challenge at the airport um, and um, was was excited that the commander at the time for the U.S. Um, uh, thought it was okay for me to stay while they handled handled the crisis. And I got to see a picture of really the, the heightened, the immediate concerns as to how that conflict could... Um, escalate to uh, a conflict between the United States and and Russia. Um, I think that the Partnership for Peace is frequently overrated as an award because at its crux, it's a title. The elements of the Partnership of Peace, what do the partners, what do the allies bring to the table, in the the tools, if you will, uh, are are much more important than, than the title. And I think Kosovo more than has those tools from all the allies and certainly the United States. And I think that, that, uh, cont- that commitment will continue. Okay. And on when Montenegro – I'm not in the Senate, I can't tell you. But I, try, I can tell you that uh, you know, we're certainly pushing, um, and uh, I know the State Department is, is pushing. I would certainly love that to be one of the items that's done before we leave town.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, uh, I didn't really want to ask that question because I know who you are, <laughs> but I, I'm new ambassador of Montenegro, Nebojša which We had the chance to meet each other a couple of years ago, and I would like to thank you for uh, being instrumental in uh, uh, establishing caucus of Montenegro in in, in Congress. Uh, we hope that we might go through lame duck period, and and, and the Senate might uh, do that. Uh, it would be better sooner uh, 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 than later. I just want to make one comment regarding the question that you you mentioned, that you discussed uh, uh, in in Istanbul, and that is the open-door policy. We in in Montenegro, and Greg knows as well, uh, throughout the recent years uh, 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 have seen that part of, of NATO policy as as, as one of the most important ones when, when it comes to Eastern European region, and especially Western Balkans, that is still uh, uh, the, the, the region of, of, of many problems that we need to do. The more integration over there is better for the whole region, for the uh, uh, stability over there. Just uh, just to, 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 to support uh, from our point of view, from an inspiring nation, that that part of NATO policy must be keep high on the agenda. Thank you very much. I agree.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I'm not used to uh, moderating a conversation with a member who is quite so efficient in, uh, in uh, answering questions as you are, Congressman Turner. Um, here's a question from the audience. With Congress plan- planning a continuing resolution that goes through April, how will this impact the European Reassurance Initiative? I don't know, and I'm
1: I'm very concerned because we're going to pass the National Defense Authorization Act out of the House Friday. Hopefully it's passed very shortly after that in the Senate and send it to the President. So we already have resolved what our top-line number is going to be and what our base number is going to be. There is no reason why a CR shouldn't conform to the enacted levels uh, that we've already agreed to. Uh, The fact that the CR is not grossed up, if you will, to recognize the challenges of 2017, um, I, I think is a, is a fatal flaw in, in the discussions and debate about a CR. Uh, hopefully, uh, the voices like mine who have been saying that will be heard.
0: Okay, one last question, right over here.
3: Joe Bailey with the Lemonade Formation Center. Thank you, Congressman. Um, did the issue with all what's happening in the Middle East, did the issues of the Middle East come up during the last NATO meeting,
1: um, and what might the role of NATO would be, for example, in Syria? Mm. Uh, Doctor, thank you for the question. Um, the um, Since we were in Turkey, uh, the is- issue of Syria obviously um, was, was present in all the discussions, not just as you have the... Um, the tension between Turkey and Europe with respect to um, you know, uh, migrant populations, but also the issue of the um, uh, refugees that are in Turkey currently, um, the border conflicts, um, ISIS, um, you know, obviously the various uh, forms of, um, of Kurds that are in many ways being effective uh, against ISIS and uh, in, um, both uh, in Iraq um, and in our, our overall uh, p- partnership. I think um, having some clarity as to what the United States' um, commitment is going to be will, will help everyone. And I think this administration is going to have to turn to this one I- immediately. Um, I, the, um, if you look at just the campaign rhetoric, you know, with you know, Hillary Clinton saying that there was going to be a no-fly zone, I, I think it was an incredibly dangerous discussion uh, because I, I don't, um, as as was rightly um, placed in many articles analyzing it, that that is an immediate direct conflict with Russia itself. But if you add in then the the, the uh, atrocities that are happening, uh, where Russia is again violating international agreements with the respective of a um, conduct of a conflict, um, this is going to have to be on the, the top of the agenda for, for this administration. How to sort this out and how to have a role for the United States where we've not been effective and um, perhaps have, have um, have had a negative impact.
0: So what you're expecting then from the new administration is despite some of the nice things that were said about Putin during the campaign, you think this will become a pretty realistic approach to Russia very quickly.
1: Well, you know, there was never any statement by the president-elect that he would walk away from the U.S. interests or commitments. There was a, a, a statement of um, recognizing that our self-declared adversary, European self-declared adversary, adversary, is a strong leader. That's going to require um, you know, a, a, both a strong and engaging response. Uh, that's going to be up to this new team that comes in, because what we have had um, is a um, negative verbal engagement with ineffective implementation of, of policy or even military uh, policy. So, mm-hmm. um it's going to have to all be right-sized. If, if, the, if the rhetoric is, um, is, is
0: diminished, but the effort is more directed, we'll probably be more successful. Okay, great. Um, I think with that, we're going to let you get back and vote. We really appreciate it. This has been just terrific to have you here. One,
1: one commercial. There are in back the deterrents to, uh, to defend um, NATO Parliamentary Report. This is also on their website. Uh, if you ha- have some interest in a section or a provision, you can email this out to other people. I think it's important to have this sort of whole-scale view of what does Russian aggression look like in Uh, and how it translates to our to-do list in the future.
0: And I would just close with this. Uh, Over the last year, I've been doing a a major study on the future of U.S.-European relations. And I think one of the striking things has been how rarely in Europe people talk about NATO. It is really important that a voice like yours is out there and uh, encouraging our allies that uh, to still take uh, NATO seriously and make the right investments. So thank you very much. Thank you.